You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to SojournMontrose.com. What we've done throughout this season is really just sought to see um, different accounts from the Word of God in which other people um, affirm the Lordship of Christ for us, right? And so what we've seen is accounts, whether by wise men from the East or whether by um, whether by demons or whether by uh, Jesus' disciples, we've seen people come to a point in their knowledge of Jesus in which they have said, this is the man who he, who he claims to be, essentially. That this is the Son of God, that this is this one who John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And so what we've emphasized all throughout this series is just the the kingship of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, and that for those of us who are Christians in the room this morning, that that by necessity puts us in submission to him, right? That like he calls us, that, that when he commands us to do something, that there is a very real and underlying authority that is, that is caught up in the man Jesus, that in his words and, and the words that he has for us are meant to be walked in for those of us who would call ourselves Christians. Um, and so this morning, what, what we're going to see is uh, the, the ultimate expression of Jesus' lordship in his, in his time on earth, like in his life. Okay, and so uh, I'm, I'm a little bit, I've got to be honest, I'm a, little bit, um, I'm a little bit fearful of this text because... Because of, because of the significance of what it is that ta- that's taking place here. Because of the glory in which Jesus is revealing himself um, to Peter, to James, and to John. And my hope is this morning that, that we would experience that same revelation. That we would see Jesus as who he is. That we would be enraptured in his glory. That we would be covered in his goodness. And that we would see that it is good. Now... The, the fact of the matter is that all of us, in, in some way, in some shape, or in some form, long to behold that which is awesome to us. And I don't mean awesome in the colloquial sense of this burrito is awesome, but I mean awesome, as in that it inspires awe in us. And so, um, if you've been in the room before, and maybe you've been to something like a Pike's Peak, and you stand at the, at the crest of that mountain and it is 14,000 feet above the rest of what is under it, and you look at the expanse that God has created, and you experience in that moment awe. Or maybe you've had the great privilege of going beyond the Arctic Circle, and in that Arctic Circle you saw the aurora borealis, the northern lights, and you saw the sky shimmer with green and with purple and many other colors, and you looked upon that and you trembled in awe, and you said, this certainly is glorious. Or maybe you've, you've looked at the different photos that come back from the Hubble telescope or from the many other satellites that roam the expanse and you look upon them and you say, surely this is marvelous. See, there's a certain real feeling and emotion in our bones that we feel when we think about gazing upon these things. It's a sense of awe, a sense of majesty, and our relative insignificance in the grandness of our surroundings, and we long for this. 
And it's in today's text that that feeling becomes a reality for Peter, James, and John. And it's my hope that Jesus would in turn grace us with the same sense of his greatness, his majesty, and his awesomeness. So let me pray and ask the Lord to do that. Father God, we love you. Um, Lord, we're grateful that we can come together. And Lord, I, I pray, Father, that we would never, um, never fail to understand the grand significance of what takes place here on a Sunday morning. Lord, that this is the continuation of what you instigated 2,000 years ago. And Lord, that for millennia, Sunday after Sunday, people have come and they have proclaimed your goodness and your grace in hopes, God, that they might be transformed into your image and likeness, both for those of us who are Christians and those of us who are not. And I pray this morning, God, that your glory would fill this room, God, that we might be brought up to the high mountain, that your cloud might descend upon us, and that in your glory we might marvel at your grandeur. Lord, only you can make that a reality this morning. Only your spirit can empower the words that are spoken, the words that are sung, the prayers that are prayed, the communion that we partake of. Would you do that this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here we find ourselves at at Mark chapter 9, and we've been kind of hanging out in in Mark chapter 1, so there's uh, a significant amount of things that have taken place Since then, and I'm not going to go through all of the details, but suffice it to say that we find ourselves in in the gospel according to Mark, which which if you're not familiar with the Bible, that is just an account of Jesus' life. That's what we use for the word gospel. We believe that Jesus' life is good news. We believe that his coming is good news. And so there are four um, traditional accounts of that in the Bible. Um, And we find ourselves here in chapter 9. And we come to verse 2, and this is what it says. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So here's what's taken place thus far in Jesus' life, right? Like we've tried really, I think, throughout this series to insert ourselves into the context, to really walk in the shoes and the feet of the disciples, to, to sort of moment by moment be revealed a, a, a further glimpse, a further understanding of God's glory uh, in and through His Son, Jesus. But what I think we, we always and consistently have to be reminded of is that, again, this is Jesus walking in humanity. Right, that this is the Jesus that came, who took upon himself flesh, who was born right in, a, in a, the lowest of states, and who has now grown up over a span of 30 years, and now has initiated his ministry relatively recently, called these men to follow him. Right, so you've got these men who have been following Jesus for give or take a year or so, and they've seen Jesus do marvelous things, they've seen Jesus, but you know what? They've also seen him in that he has two arms just like they do. That he has two legs, just like they do. Two eyes, two ears, a nose, a mouth. That he has hair, that, he's, that he is human. But in this moment, he is transfigured before their very eyes. And that in this moment, they behold 
His glory, a glory that we cannot even really truly begin to imagine or to fathom. That even as I conjure up images of the top of Pike's Peak or uh, outer space or the vastness of all of the glory that we see in the expanse of creation. Again, whether you are a Christian or not, I think we can affirm that there are glorious sights to behold. But in this moment, Jesus' clothes, they shine in a radiant white, whiter than any other thing, and His radiance illuminates the dark sky like a flash of lightning, but lasting more than a millisecond. So I want you to just put yourself for a moment in this place on the top of this mountain that Jesus, this man who you have followed, who has done fairly significant things thus far, that after a day's journey, you arrive at the top of the mountain, that the sun has set, that the stars are in the background, and that in that moment, Jesus for that moment, reveals himself in the fullness of his glory, that that glory is a glory that so shines, that is so radiant, that it lights up the sky. If you've ever seen a flash of lightning, everything for a moment is illuminated, that that's what's taking place here and now before these disciples, these men just like you and me, that Jesus reveals himself in this radiance of his glory. I like to think of this event, honestly, in, in tandem with its converse event or its, its opposite event, right? So this is a, a moment in Jesus' life in which he sheds for a moment his, his human sort of uh, trappings and he reveals himself in the fullness of his glory. Well, in Philippians 2, chapter 6, we see, again, the opposite of that moment in Jesus' birth. And this is how Paul describes it in verse 6. It says that, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So I think when we compare these two things, what we begin to see is that Jesus, again, was very much normal in his, in his walking about up to this moment. That in his fellowship with his disciples, that he walked in human form. That he took upon himself all of the awkwardness that is this body, which if you've spent any amount of time in one, you know is uncomfortable. What a lowliness. Right? It says in Philippians that, he was in the form of God. So this is before Jesus ever steps on the stage. Jesus is in the form of God. So whatever that form is, whatever that form looks like, we can be assured, one, that it is glorious and good. And yet in that moment, in the moment of the birth, in his birth, of his advent, he becomes flesh. And that if we took that word from verse 7 in Philippians chapter 2, we can know that Jesus had been walking this earth up to this point in his emptied state, in, in that state in which he had emptied himself of his glory, taken upon himself the form of man. But here at the transfiguration, he sheds for a moment his inglorious appearance. And in his human body, so he doesn't become something different, but in his human body, in the clothes that he is wearing, he sheds, he removes for a moment that veil, and he reveals the glory of his goodness to these three disciples. The glory that he has always had as the God-man, 
He removes the veil from his glory and his brilliance shines against the black of night, the dark of the world, and the poverty of the human nature. So what happens next? Verse 4 says this, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. The question that we might be asking ourselves is, this is such a significant moment in terms of Jesus' ministry. If this is all about His glory, if this is all about Him being revealed in His godness, if this is a moment in which Jesus Himself affirms His Lordship by shedding His human trappings and displaying Himself in the brilliance that He owns, why are Moses and Elijah there? Moses at this point has been dead for approximately 1,400 years, so you would think, you know, relatively insignificant in terms of the timeline of things. And Elijah has been dead for about 900. Why would it be significant that these two men would be present? Well, what we've tried to do, I think, over, over the past several weeks, um, really even since Advent, is recognize that that the Old Testament, right, those books written before Jesus came, and the New Testament, those books that were written, written after Jesus came, that those are entirely interlinked, that they cannot be separated, that in fact one is incomplete without the other. And what we have here is a significant reference, a significant connecting point between those two realities. That if you know the story of Moses, you know that God essentially chose him, that, that, that God appointed him to be this man who would lead the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. They've been captive for over 400 years, subjugated to the Pharaoh and his will. And God says to Moses, you are going to set my people free. And of course, that's where we get all of these great, great stories, the stories of the plagues that God leverages upon the kingdom of Egypt, the, the story about um, their flight from Egypt in which Moses parts the Red Sea and the people of Israel are delivered to the other side safely while the armies of Pharaoh are crushed in the water. And then they wander in the desert. And in their wandering, the Lord reveals to them His good and His gracious and His perfect law. And we know those as the, the Ten Commandments. And it's it's this law in which we begin to recognize not only that God demands perfection, but that, that God demands a perfection that we can't possibly live up to. It's that law that stares us into a face, that becomes, becomes a, a mirror for us, that reveals to us our sickness, the cancer that we cannot rid ourselves of. This law that is given to Moses is the law that we must, but could not and cannot fulfill. And Elijah, Elijah was a prophet, which typically prophets are, are appointed again by God to speak the word of God to his people. And often it's either, it's either one of two things. It's a, it's a rebuke for where they have failed or neglected to live up to the law, or it is a promise that one day they will be liberated from the yoke of the law. And Elijah often throughout the scriptures is known as the foremost of these prophets. In fact, he's one of, one of the only men in scripture who does not in fact die, but is carried up by God himself in a chariot of fire. You see, Elijah was a prophet 
from whom were spoken prophecies that we both longed for, but could not and cannot bring to pass. And so in this moment, these two men who bear in them a weight of significance for the people of Israel, who bear in them a weight of significance in terms of the law that could not be fulfilled and the promises of God that we longed to become true. Jesus is saying in that moment that He is the one. That He is the one who will take that law which we cannot live up to and He will live it for us. That He is that man of whom the prophets spoke the suffering servant, the one who would come and who would be despised and rejected by men and yet would rise in victory over Satan's sin and death and bear the curse on our behalf. It is entirely and incredibly significant that these two men are here. Now, this is a, this is a wonderful account, but... Why does Jesus feel the need to do this? After all, you and I, we have the benefit of knowing the full story and knowing that in in just a few short chapters that Jesus will not only die, but that he will rise again from the dead. So this seems, at least in my mind, superfluous, unneeded, right? I mean, he's about to perform the miracle of miracles. Why is this here and why, why and, and why again would there only be Three people to whom he would reveal himself to in this way and with this significance. Let's read verses 5 through 6. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, for those of us who have been in a moment of awe, not not comparable to this, but as close as we can get, for those of us who have been in a moment of awe, have you ever noticed that nobody really says much in those moments? Like that when you get to the top of a Pikes Peak or that when you behold the Aurora Borealis, or maybe it's even something as simple as a really cool fireworks show, that there's not a whole lot of talking that goes on, that you're busy taking in the glory that is before you, that you are busy beholding that which is in front of you, marveling at it. Nobody can really begin to frame in language what it is that they're taking in. You may muster an ooh or an ah, but not much else. Well, for those moments, the Bible always has one guy, and that guy is Peter. This is a moment where you want to be like, Peter, please just shut it. Please just don't, don't talk. Just, just let, just, let's just be here. Let's be present in this moment. And yet, and yet Peter's idiocy should be comforting for all of us in the room this morning. Because there's something significant in the, in the words that Peter uses to address this, this king who is now revealed in glory. He says to Jesus, Rabbi. And while that is a term of respect and potentially even endearment in that particular culture, it's not a term that is befitting of the God who is shining in glory before him. That in this moment, Peter still sees Jesus as maybe Moses and Elijah's equal, not as their God. You see... All throughout the Gospels, we see that Peter is a guy who just doesn't get it. 
he missed time and time again. And so I think, just as an aside, this is just a, uh, for free. I think what we can see here is that Jesus is, is patient with both the doubting believer and the slow to come to belief. Because this, my friends, this is Peter, right? Who later it will be said that he is the rock. This is one of Jesus' foremost three disciples, the sort of inner circle that he would choose to bring to the top of this mountain and to reveal himself in the greatness of his glory. And Peter still wouldn't get it. And Jesus yet does not abandon him. And Jesus yet continues to preach to Peter the gospel. Jesus continues to tell Peter, this is what's going to happen. Let me remind you that Peter here doesn't get it, and yet Christ, being merciful, brings him to this mountain, into the cloud of God's very glory, the glory which Moses was only allowed to behold in part, and he stands in the presence of goodness, unscathed, unharmed, in spite of his terror at the majesty of Christ. That because of Jesus, we are allowed to enter into a space where we have the freedom to doubt, the freedom to ask questions, knowing that they will be responded to in mercy and in kindness by a God who would have himself revealed to us. But let's get back to the question I just asked a a moment ago. Why does Jesus feel the need to do this? Again, right? Like the, the crucifixion is what's coming. His victory, his resurrection from the dead is what's coming. Why? Why this? Well, I think we have to go back and again understand the context a little bit. Mark chapter 8, verse 27, this is what takes place. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And then this is what takes place next. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer all things. So that's Jesus saying, I must suffer all things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Read the next line. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So here's Jesus, right? Peter just said, Jesus, you're the Christ. Like, you're in charge. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one that all of this history has been pointing to. The trajectory of human history is consummated in your coming, in your arrival here. And then Jesus says, all right, I must suffer. I must be rejected. I will die, but then in three days I will rise again in victory. And Peter goes, that's not how it works. I'm just saying, like, that's... One, uh, it says that Jesus said it plainly, like that it was clear. So I'm just kind of blown away by, again, Peter's inability to understand what it is that's taking place before his very eyes. And then this is what Jesus says to them next. In verse 34, it says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit 
his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? So here's what Jesus is saying, right? He's saying, I, I am who the Bible says I am. I am he of whom it has been said he is the son of God. And he says, look, what I have come to do is not maybe what you anticipated in terms of a political liberation, but I have come to set you free from something else entirely. And that will require my suffering. And that will require my suffering even unto death. But fear not, I will rise in victory three days later. And then he tells his followers that for those of us, right, so this is his followers being you and me now, right? Let's, let's, let's take ourselves out of this situation just for a moment and remind ourselves that if we, if we say we are Christians, that we are then followers of Christ, that if we are to follow Jesus, that by necessity means that we will follow him in his suffering that we will be like Him in His suffering, that we also will be despised and rejected by men, that we also will lose that which we believe we might even have earned. That to follow Jesus, we will lose something. We've talked about that the past couple of weeks, right? That we'll lose some dignity and that we have to walk into conversations with those who we esteem intellectually and tell them that a Jewish carpenter who lived to about the age of 33 died on a Roman cross in relative insignificance somehow is now the savior of their souls. Jesus has told us, brothers and sisters, that for those of us who follow him, that we would encounter this suffering. In fact, what happens very shortly after that, still in chapter 9, is that Jesus again foretells his death in verse 30 when it says, They went on from there, passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And verse 32 again, But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Which, like, when you've heard the same thing over and over and you still don't get it, you know that feeling where you're like, I'm just not going to ask anymore. So again, why? Why is this here? Why is this sandwiched in the middle of two proclamations from Jesus that not only would he suffer and die, but that those who follow him would be wrapped up in that same suffering? It's because the promise of Jesus to those who would follow him, the promise of Jesus to those who would experience Jesus' suffering is that they would also be caught up with him in his glory. That Jesus reveals to Peter, James, and John his glory that they might be assured that in his death he surely will have victory. That Peter has no need to rebuke Jesus because Jesus will rebuke death. This is a moment of assurance for Peter, for James, and for John, but it's also a moment of assurance, brothers and sisters, for you and I, the assurance of two things. One, that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God. And two, that those covered in the grace of Jesus not only have the ability to stand in his glory, but by that same grace will be brought into the fullness 
of the presence of His glory forever. That our perpetual and eternal existence in the kingdom of God will be like unto the top of that mountain in which we behold the glory of Christ shining in its radiance for all to see for all time. And in it we will say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So what happens next? Verse 7 says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, if you've read any portion of Mark before, you know that um, frequently throughout the book of Mark, Jesus will do something wonderful and glorious, and then immediately after, he will say, now don't tell anyone, which is somewhat of a fool's errand, right? (laughs) In that when we see something cool, we typically share it, especially if you're a hipster because you had to be the first one to see it, right? But he's often telling people, don't, like, don't say anything yet. And here's why. Up until this time, again, and all throughout this time, we see that not only, not only do the, sort of the general followers of Jesus not understand, but even his closest disciples, those whom he has walked with, those whom he has taught personally, those who he has spent private time in prayer and in teaching with, still don't understand. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, you won't understand this until until you've seen me risen from the dead. And this, I think, caps off our our Epiphany series perfectly. In that we, like the disciples here, have seen what Jesus is. We've seen what He then calls us to do and he has called us now to share this message. But see, here's the thing. We don't, we don't sit in the same place where we see the transfigured Christ and then he says to us, don't tell anyone yet. Because you and I have seen the resurrected Christ. And so now, again, right, the, the impetus in following Jesus, that which we, we have talked about throughout this entire series is that we must, by necessity, tell people about this glorious God and King come in Christ for those who are broken. And we get to do that because we have, again, seen His resurrection. But what I don't want to do is is end this series again on a a do, right? On 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 an imperative, right? So there are things in the Bible that, that, that are indicative, meaning if you're a follower of Jesus, it says this is what's true about you. And then there are imperatives, which always follow the indicative, right? So if this is what's true of you, then this means that this is how you then live your life. That this is then how you follow Jesus. This is what it looks like for this to be true of you. And I want to end on the indicative. Because ultimately, what this transfiguration event is all about, especially for these disciples, again, right, it's a moment of assurance. It's a moment in which Jesus, just, for, just briefly, 
sheds his humanity and says, look at me. I will not fail you. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, and, and I love it because it's, its language is entirely wrapped up in, entirely connected to this whole story, right? That Moses, to whom God reveals himself just in part, and now Jesus revealing himself in his fullness, and now in Corinthians 3.18, this is spoken over us, those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so now we can know, brothers and sisters, what it is that 2 Corinthians is actually saying to us. That we all, with unveiled face, that as we behold, as we look at the transfigured Christ, as we see Him in His God glory, that we, by necessity, will be transformed into what? The same image as Christ, which is unbelievable. That we will be like Him. That we will share in the inheritance of Christ because He has covered us in His righteousness. That God made Him who knew no sin to become sin. That we might become the righteousness of Christ. That we will be clothed in His glory and that we will dwell in it. That we will be saturated in the presence of the transfigured Christ and that that will go on for all of eternity. That if you are a Christian in the room this morning, that this is the truth that grounds you in the ability to then go and be despised by men. Because you will be beheld in glory by God the Father. Because God the Father will look upon you at the end of all things and He will say, this is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. And so, brothers and sisters, my my prayer this morning And my prayer for this small neighborhood church, this collection of people who have come together in light of their identity in Christ as those who have been brought from death into life is that we might take heart. That we might know that by the power of His glory and grace, we also are being transformed into the same image, one degree of glory to the next. And that finally, we may boldly proclaim this Christ in word and in deed as heralds of the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, as John would say. Let's pray.